0: had a great treat last weekend. My husband had gone to Atlanta on business and I got to tag along. I followed him a day later. And one of the reasons it was a great treat besides getting to be with my husband for the weekend, which actually I hardly saw him because I was hanging out with two friends. I got to see two dear friends of mine, um, one from childhood and one from college. Um, Two of my closest friends growing up both live in Atlanta and they do not know each other. They are from opposite ends of my life. One is named Blythe, and I knew Blythe in second grade. She and I were friends through grade school and junior high. We went separate ways. She moved to Texas, and I moved to another area of Southern California. That's where we had been. And um, we were very much alike at that time, although I was not nearly as adorable and sophisticated and beautiful as Blythe, and so she was very intimidating to me as a friend. But I adored her, and we had a fun friendship. We were kind of wild and crazy together. This was before I was a believer, and she was not a believer as well. The Lord Jesus got a hold of my life in high school. And in that time, we were doing summers alternating California, Texas, California, Texas. And so um, she actually prayed to receive Christ with me several times. (laughs) I would leave and go back to California, and she would go back to not following Jesus. And so about 10 years ago, we got reconnected and come to find out that she had become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. My other friend that I got to see was Jenny. And Jenny is a friend of mine that I met doing college ministry. And Jenny was one of those people that everybody loves. I mean, she is, as I would say, a hairdresser on steroids. I mean, she's not a hairdresser, but I mean, everyone tells her all their issues like, they, like she is a hairdresser. She can stand in line at a grocery store and someone will pour out their deepest, darkest secrets. She's got one of those personalities that's so welcoming and so loving and um, people just know they're safe with her. And so she's very intimidating to me in that way because she's just um, so godly. And so I was getting a bit anxious with both of these friends. You know, Blythe had gone on and done the things that I had thought God was gonna, that I, had thought I was going to do before I was a Christian. She was in the advertising world and had done the Boston and New York and um, had really been successful and just an, a neat lady but very intimidating in that end. And then Jenny, very intimidating in terms of the spiritual. She and her husband were doing inner-city missions in Portland, living in Skid Row. I mean, it was just... So I'm going to this trip and I'm thinking... Oh man, one is going to think I am so worldly, and the other is going to think I'm a Jesus freak. I'm just so certain that neither one of them are going to be very accepting of my life. And this is is my issue. This has nothing to do with them. They probably never gave it a second thought, because we think people think about us far more than they ever even (laughs) dare to think about us. People just don't even bother. So I mean, I was so anxious, I wasn't even sure what I was going to wear And so, of course, my time with them was just beautiful. They are the furthest thing from judging my life. But it was such a reality check for me at what I look to 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 define me and how enslaved I am to what other people think. You know, it's God's word alone that defines what life in Christ is. And yet we so easily look to the approval or disapproval of others. In my mind, I thought, well, if Blythe thinks I'm freaky and Jenny thinks I'm worldly, then I must be balanced. (laughs) Right? Do we do that? If we've got people in our life who think that we're way out there spiritually and people who think we're not spiritual enough, then we think, I got down. But again, what standard are we using? We're using our own standard. So now I'm not judging myself by Blythe and I'm not judging myself by Jenny. I'm judging myself by me. And the only true measurement of what real life in Christ is, is God's word. And God thankfully took me back to his word and exposed me last weekend to myself. God's word alone determines what it means to be alive in Christ. Looking to anyone or anything else will cause me to miss the abundant life. If I don't look to the word of God to define my life, I will look to other people and eventually become enslaved to their ideas or to the culture around me. Even churchy cultures can enslave us if they're not based on the Word of God. And so we must look to the Word of God. We must let it expose us. And like I said, thankfully by God's grace and experiencing His presence through His Word, I got exposed. And the Lord is asking me, will I find spiritual communion with Him, as John Piper says, sweet enough and hope in His promises deep enough, not just to cope, but to flourish and to rejoice in him. Will I find spiritual communion with him and his word sweet enough and hope in his promises deep enough, not just to cope, which will cause me to look to everyone else, but to flourish and rejoice in him, which brings freedom. I think this is the kind of communion that the people were having in Nehemiah 9. You know, we've been through this incredible journey of Nehemiah 1 through 8, and we've seen the people of Israel who have been scattered because of captivity brought back to their land, Jerusalem. And we've seen God restore them and rebuild the wall. We've had this incredible journey of these living stones coming alive and God breathing life and these gates and all this beauty of of God really restoring His people. And in the midst of this, they they finally face the law of God. We saw that last week. And they realize how much they're missing the abundant life, don't they? And so they begin to weep. But Nehemiah and Ezra, the priest, say, No, this is a day holy for the Lord. Go eat choice food. Drink sweet wine. May the joy of the Lord be your strength. And give to those who don't have. And stops their weeping and tells them to rejoice. And I think something must have happened in that rejoicing because, again, it, it drew them back to the Word and then they saw that they needed the, to celebrate the Feast of booth. So now they're camping out, church camp out on top of the on top of the temple. It's kind of funny to think of. On top of their houses, they're setting up tents and they're remembering that God has freed them from Egypt and they're remembering that they're pilgrims and aliens and that a deliverer will come to take them to their eternal home. And so they've had this incredible time of, of choice food and sweet drink and Tenting it and experiencing the presence of God, I think they've had a communion that's deep enough and sweet enough that they're daring to hope in His promises that they could actually flourish. That they could not just be restored to Jerusalem, that they could not just rebuild the wall, but they could actually be revived. That they could actually have life again, the life that they gave away with their repetitive sin. And so they, they really are rejoicing and believing and remembering their history. And one of the beautiful things of chapter 9 is that towards the end is they dare to hope. And they dare to ask God to be even more free than they already are. They dare to ask God for more than restoration and rebuilding. They're asking God for full revival. It must have been deep enough and sweet enough, their communion with Him in these feasts, to dare to hope that they could flourish. And so they look again to the Word of God, the definition of life, and they realize that before flourishing is repentance. They cannot truly be revived as a people. They cannot truly be, be alive again and free until they face, the Word of God, and repent from where they've been. And so here we pick up just 24 hours, a day or two, after this Feast of Booths, these tents have been taken down, and they're probably excited to get back into their homes. Running water, no, they didn't probably have that. But the people of Israel are assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads, Nehemiah 1, 1 through 3. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place, and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. So they see that as they face the word of God, that they're suffering. And they recognize that they're suffering. And don't you love Eastern cultures? If you've had a chance to experience an Eastern culture, they wear how they feel. It's still true today. This sackcloth, this ashes, they were met letting their bodies and their voices match their hearts. Sometimes I think it would be so great for the church of Jesus Christ to let our bodies match our heart once in a while. You know, we're so quick to say, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. In fact, if somebody were to ask you, how are you? And you say, I'm not fine. They'd say, oh, good, me too, and keep walking. We're so used to it. And we're so used to hearing it that we wouldn't even... Let's try that out on each other, okay? It was relieving. How are you doing? Not so great. And see if anyone even pauses to listen to you. But I love Eastern cultures. They're not like that. They're not like that. They go deep. They go below the surface. And they let you know how they feel. And so here they are in this sackcloth, these deep, this deep mourning clothes. They're showing the Lord, their God, and one another that they feel the weight of their sin, slavery. This ashes or this earth would be a symbol of frailty. I'm made from the dust. I know I'm of dust. And I'm frail and I'm human and I fail. It's a sign of humility. And they separate themselves from the people. And lots of commentators, you know, have lots to say on separating and the marriages and the intermarriages. But I think the main point of this separation, like the commentary in your study, is is that they were not blaming the culture for their sin. Oh, ladies, do we so blame the culture. We say, well, it's so hard to live obedient to God's Word in today's day. I mean, come on. When this was written, the rules were different. The cultures were different. No. You know, check out Rome for a minute. When Jesus was walking on the earth, it was about as debauched as we are now. It's still God's Word. And they're not blaming the culture for not following it. They're not blaming each other. They're identifying with their past generation, not blaming past generations, but identifying with it, seeing their own cycle of choosing slavery to the world rather than freedom to the word. I love what G.K. Chesterton says, for when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. And this is what they're acknowledging. In our cycle of history, Lord, We have every time we have ceased to worship you, we've worshiped everything else. And it has led to our slavery. And they're trusting again the Word of God to define life. They're facing the Word of God this quarter of a day, knowing that this is the only way that they will flourish. The Word turns them from worshiping everything else to worshiping God. And I love this, this next section, verses 6 through 35 or so. It's you, 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 you. Did you see that? I mean, I started reading how many you's and yours are there, and just the you's and the yours, I got to 60 and my eyes went crossed. I mean, that is kind of the point. They start worshiping Him. It says, You are the Lord. You alone you have made heaven and the heaven of the heavens with all their hosts and the earth and all that is on it and the seas and all that is in them and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. They get it. Why don't we? They are saying to the Lord, God, you are the sustainer of life. You alone created life. You hold all things together. Through you and for you, everything has been made. And they recognize his mercy and his goodness in contrast to their rebellion and their pride and their ingratitude. That's a pretty huge thing. I don't know how often we've really done that. We've stopped and we've looked at the creator of the universe and his gifts to us and his goodness to us and compared it. To our ingratitude, our rebellion, and our pride, no wonder they're weeping. No wonder they have sackcloth. No wonder they have ashes. But what I love is that it's worshipful. It's not wallowing. And it's worshipful because it's you, 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 you. Wallowing is me, 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 me. The word you is key. God is the subject of every sentence of this prayer. He is the the doer of every action in this prayer, of anything that is positive, 60 times at least. I love what Francis Chan says. From start to finish, this movie is obviously about God. He is the main character. How is it possible that we live as though it's all about us? Facing the law, they're getting it once again. It's not about them. And when it's been about them, it has led to slavery. It has led to being worried about the Blysts and the Jennies and the culture and sucking into the culture because it always attracts our flesh, doesn't it? And instead, they're going back to the Word, back to the Word, and back to realizing that when it's about Him, I'm free. When it's about me, I'm enslaved. This is key to our freedom you, 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 you. And key to our slavery, to others, to sin, is me, 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 me. I am so indebted to my friend Michelle who has traveled with me to Central Asia. There has been probably more than one occasion, but one that sticks out in my mind, in which I was just absolutely panicking, and it was me, 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 about about teaching, and, and was I really going to be obedient to God? Would God really use, you know, just that junk stuff That we carry. And I remember Michelle, wounds of a friend, gracious and sweet, but right to the point, said, Do you hear how many times you said you in that sentence? And in that moment, I knew I'm enslaved to my performance, to being important, to being needed, to having an effect. And I am completely forgetting that I am not the creator of the universe, by golly. And if God brought me here, did He not have a plan? The Spirit of God indwells them. The Spirit of God indwells me. His Word is holy and living. You, 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 His, His, His. Freedom, freedom is in Him. He is a sustainer. He is also the Savior of life. They recognize, too, that He not only created the universe, you know, they start with Genesis. You can see that they've been facing the law. And now they move into the Savior of life and how God calls out a people for Himself, how He chooses them and they don't choose Him. It says in Nehemiah 9, 7, and 8, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful and you have kept your promise for you are righteous." I love that they face the Word of God and they see that the reason they keep falling into the cycle of sin is they are forgetting that He is the Savior of His people. He called them out. They didn't call themselves out. Don't you even love that it says in there that God found Abraham faithful? It doesn't say Abraham was faithful and God said, Yay, I want him on my team. Sometimes we look at faith that way. Oh, God is so lucky to have me on His team, isn't He? Boy, I'm faithful. I'm faithful. We do it though. We do it. We say, "Ooh, you know, one yeah. It's it's craziness and yet we do it. We see we forget that the heart of man is desperately wicked. That is what we learn from the law of the Lord, which is still true today, that nothing in us wants to believe in God. It is him who opens up our heart to believe him. Jesus said, "No one can come to the Father unless no one can come to me unless the Father has drawn him." And we see it throughout the Old Testament. Abram was a pagan worshiper, and God appeared. God chose him. Abraham wasn't wandering around going, gee, I wonder where the one true God is. God appeared to him, and they're remembering it. You choose. You find faithful. You call a people out for yourself. As I was talking with my friend, Blythe, this last weekend, she was sharing her heart with me about somebody very dear to her, Who just, as many times as he is hearing the gospel, he just, it's it's just, he just doesn't accept it. And she said to me, Patty, I don't understand why God makes it so hard for some to believe. And I understand that question. And I have felt that way. But the longer I walk with the Lord, the more amazed I am that any of us do believe. Because in our sin nature, we don't want to believe, we want to be our own God. We don't want anyone to tell us what to do, and we see throughout Scripture that that is absolutely true. I am more amazed that I ever did believe, and I know it is a work of God, because my pride and my rebellion, I would never do it on my own. I have become more amazed. Think about it. Isn't, doesn't the Word of God say that the message of the cross is foolishness? What we believe is crazy. We were doing a training video with our leaders in the fall with Matt Chandler, and I love what he said. He said, think about what we believe. It's absolutely crazy. You know, God spoke and the world appeared. And then he breathed some air into some dust, and there was a man, and he put him to sleep and made a woman. You know, and, and, and then he parts seas, and he rains quail and manna, and He. you guys really believe this, an ark and a flood and, and, and then a virgin birth? I mean, come on and then a perfect life, and a sacrifice, and an empty tomb, and and then he's going to come back and get you on a white horse. Do you realize how silly what we believe is? How it can sound like foolishness to those who are perishing. Why do we believe it? Because God has opened our eyes to the truth. Amen is right. He alone chooses, he alone finds faithful, and he alone keeps promises to his nation's So even as he's pulled out this nation for himself, a people for himself, when they find themselves in slavery, he sees their affliction and he frees them. Nehemiah 9, 9 through 11, And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. You divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea and dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. You alone keep your promises by miracles. Oh, ladies, if we stop for a minute, we will see that he has kept his promises to us by miracles. You miraculously free your people from slavery. I don't know about you, but I have been miraculously freed from the slavery of sin. You have led them by a pillar of cloud by day and a fire by night. Ladies, we have the Spirit of God. You saved the lives of your people through right rules, true laws, good statutes. And I love this, a holy Sabbath, a time to rest and to reflect and to remember that you're God. He teaches us how to stay free in a culture no matter what it's like because his very word is life. You met every physical need, bread from heaven, water from a rock. Your people lacked nothing and appreciated nothing. Isn't that interesting? The more we lack or the less we lack, the less we appreciate. Isn't it true? Even when they committed great blasphemy, you would not forsake them. When sin abounded, super grace abounded. You continue to lead them and to feed them spiritually. I mean, seriously, you give up the God who parts water for a golden calf. I don't see the calf part in any water. But they willingly did that, and he still doesn't forsake them. In fact, in Nehemiah 918 21, 40 years you sustain them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet didn't swell that just blow you away? I love that line. I mean, some of us would be bummed about clothes not wearing out because then you can't get anything new. But their feet not swelling? That's pretty cool. Wandering, 40 years, no feet swelling. He is the Savior of life, the giver of life. And he's lastly the supplier of life. We see in this, in this account of praise to him, they're honoring God, forgiving kingdoms and peoples of every corner of the land that you promised, subduing the inhabitants, fulfilling your promise, multiplying your people as the stars of the heaven, turning them into a great nation. And every time they prospered, they walked away from you. They walked away from your ways. In fact, they had contempt. In fact, they killed your Prophets who tried to take them from their slavery and bring them back to freedom. That's what the prophets did. They went to the people and said, You're being enslaved to the cultures. You're being enslaved to, the, to your blithes and your jennies. You're being enslaved. And God is calling you to freedom and abundant life. And you know what they did? They killed the prophets. Ladies, sometimes this is us, isn't it? When we're really hurting and we're really weak When we run to God and to His Word, it's like we're hooked up with an IV to the Holy Spirit. And we're so tight. And we can sense His presence. And we can walk and step. And then healing comes. And He brings us back into a time of prosperity. And what do we do? Usually we walk away from His ways. Thanks, God. Thanks for getting me through triage. I'll take it from here. I've talked with several women who've walked through such deep waters of pain and loss and death and divorce, and many of them will say to me when they're beginning to heal, I'm almost afraid to heal because the time with the Lord has been so sweet, and I am afraid that as I heal, I will walk away from his ways. And they are right to be concerned. We are just like them. When we prosper, when things are good, we usually forsake his ways. But God is good. He supplies judgment to wake them up, but not wipe them out. But they become enslaved again, and they cry out again, and He sends deliverers again, and the cycle continues. Till Nehemiah 9:30 30 and 31, Many years you bore with them and warned them by your Spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the, land, into the hand of the peoples of the lands, Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Finally, you graciously allowed our ancestors to experience physically what they had already given away spiritually. Isn't that what happens? Sometimes God has to move in and allow us to experience physically in our bodies what we've already given away spiritually. We've given away our freedom in Christ and we've been enslaved to the ideas of others or to substances or to any kind of other addiction. And now we find ourselves physically stuck where, where we've already spiritually been for a while. God's graciousness, his wake-up call, is to allow us often to experience physically what we've already been feeling and experiencing spiritually. And this is where the people are. They're physically still feeling the effects of what God has allowed because of their spiritual condition. And what is so beautiful is they cry out for freedom. They don't say, we deserve it, so let us stay here. We deserve it, Lord, but we have communed with you deep enough and sweet enough to hope again in your promises that we can again flourish. They boldly appeal to their God to be free once again, to enjoy good gifts of his presence that alone frees. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all this hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Behold, we are slaves this day. We are in great distress. They acknowledge where they are, but they are hoping and trusting in his promises to allow them to flourish again. Derek Kidner says, there is all the difference here between self-pity and self-knowledge. The great distress which ends this prayer is a sign of life and of a vision that has not been tamely given up. They're not giving up on the fact that they have been called to be free, to live free. And they're trusting that because God is Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, that there is still hope. These people identified with their ancestors. I know I do. Do you? Do you identify with the slavery that comes from rejecting God as sustainer, savior, supplier of all of our needs? We have not together stood for hours and faced the law of God. We have not together eaten choices. Foods and sweet wines. We have not together lived in tents for seven to eight days, although that would be kind of fun. We should try that at Sister Sister Camp out. <laughs> Recognizing God's deliverance of us from slavery of sin and anticipating the Savior. We have not done those things. But honestly, ladies, as I look at the last seven weeks, we've done more. We've actually been able to do more. We have together had the opportunity to face the full revelation of who God is as sustainer, savior, and supplier. We have 500 more years of history than they had. And that history is Jesus Christ, the sustainer, who was there when God created the world. And not only was he a part of breathing life into this entire creation, but he gives us new life in him. We have 500 years of Jesus Christ as Savior who doesn't just free us from captivity, physical captivity, but frees us from the bonds of sin itself. And we have Jesus Christ as sustainer who tells us that we have everything in Him, every riches in Christ in Him. He can supply all our needs. We have more. We have been able to feast on more because of His perfect life, sacrificial death, an empty tomb, We have Jesus Christ because he's given us his spirit. We have had the opportunity to have a communion with God that is sweet enough and deep enough to hope in his promises to not just cope, but to flourish. He said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And I think the question for us tonight is, have we allowed God's truth to do that? Because it's kind of pointless to move on to Nehemiah 11, 12, and 13 if we haven't. Have we allowed God's word, to, God's word to expose us? Have we been able to see, have we been willing to see the slavery that results when we try to find life in anything other than Him? Do we want not just restoration, rebuilding, but do we want revival? Do we want to hope and pray and, and commune with God deep enough and sweet enough to believe again that he can make us flourish. We're all at different places. Some of you might be in here today and have never chosen to follow Jesus Christ. You're back at the restoring stage. And some of us have and we're being rebuilt, but we need still revival. We're all at different places. But each of us can say we're in distress. There is not one woman in here who can say that in every area of her life she's in total freedom. Not if you have a heartbeat. You're still in distress somewhere. And so I want us to take these last ten minutes tonight, and I want us to commune with God. I want us to talk to Him. I want us to have some time to just really listen to Him and let Him show us from His Word where our distress is so that we can be reminded again of His deep promises to flourish us. So I'm going to pray here, and I would like you to find a spot That is safe for you. You can stay right where you are. You can move around. You can get on the floor. You can come over to the cross. I want you to go wherever you want to go that's good. Remember, they they let their bodies say what their heart felt. Feel free to do that. You don't have to. I know we're Westerners and we're private. But you can. In fact, I brought some mud. I brought some earth for you if you want to put that on your face. I was talking with a a leader this morning. And she had been reading this passage to her daughter. And then her daughter had messed up pretty significantly in an area where she's messed up before. And the daughter was wanting to prove to her mom that this time she's really sorry. So she went outside and she put mud on her face because she had read the passage. And her mom teased her and said, so where's the sackcloth? And she said, hold on a minute. She went in the pantry and she got a paper sack and put it on her. Let's be 12-year-olds. So go find a spot as I pray or stay where you are. Whatever position is good for you to just talk to the Lord. Lord, we want to bless you who is from everlasting to everlasting. We want to worship you. Because if we don't, we'll worship everything else. So as we look at your word, Lord, we have to ask ourselves, do we see you alone as the sustainer? Do we see you alone as the creator, as the one who all things were created through you and for you, that you are before all things, in and in you all things hold together. Ladies, let's confess the ways in which we have been ungrateful, rebellious, prideful, seeing ourselves as our own creator, the ways in which we've decided we know better than he does and have done our and determined what we are going to do for ourselves rather than following God's law. Take some time to ask him.